Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. I hope you all had a splendid Christmas, and I'm hoping that you all be looking forward to a joyous New Year. Anyhow, we're continuing. And in order to get the New Year off to a good start? More what did you call it? Uh, beverage Bonanza. Beverage Bonanza. <laughs> Be- beverage Bonanza Part 2. Yes. Uh, starting with a, a dear friend, Alice Firing, uh, who is uh, an amazingly knowledgeable wine writer. I don't know where, how, she says she's been storing the information up since she was a child. So anyhow, so it's not surprising, I guess, that she's that knows about natural wine, which is being, uh, it's like a tsunami uh, on the wine list anymore. Um, let's listen to her explain what it is and why it's so popular. You know, we always love talking to Alice Firing, and um, she's she's such a source of inter interesting information. I mean, not this dull uh, <laughs> stuff that, that most people write wine about with wines. And um, oh, we've interviewed you so many times by like Georgian wines. And, and this, this, you're on trend with this current one. It's called Natural Wine for the People. And um, it, it's like a handbook. It's the size that you can put it into uh, your backpack or whatever and take it with you and, and seek out these wines. It'll tell you what what natural wine really is. And, and the, it's an adorable book, Alice. And the illustrations are also amazing, aren't they? Did you do those? I mean, they're just... No. Oh, no, I wish I did do them. But, yeah. you know, Dishan Shokshi did. And, uh, he is based in Japan, and he was fabulous. She really was fabulous. I, when I first saw them, I was just laughing my way through. Oh, I, I love them, yes. So. Now, the interesting, the interesting thing is that this this is not only a book about natural wines. We'll get to that. But it, but it's a very informative book about the whole process of developing and making wine. Yes. Right. So, so even if you don't like the idea of natural wines, you should, you should buy a copy and read it because you'll learn a lot about wine. <laughs> How, I like that. <laughs> how, how come you got to know so much? She started uh, in a high chair. I've been doing it for a long time. I can't believe you were drinking wine in your high chair. <laughs> well, yeah, I was. That's, ver- that's very well, French, right? You're very French from, uh, <laughs> yeah, from uh, first generation, uh, you the pale people. So, no, it's like definitely not a French household. <laughs> Uh-huh. But it was just definitely not a, a household that there was any taboo about wine drinking. So wine drinking happened on Friday night and Saturday afternoon, and you know nobody thought about not giving it to uh, whoever could drink out of a glass. <laughs> That's so. nice. Now let, let me let me give you a starting point here, because otherwise we'll just talk and talk and talk. As for now, now I'll turn the sound off. So. People have told me that one of the best winemaking academies in the world, which is called University of California at Davis, the people who mm-hmm. graduate from that are not really winemakers, they're chemists. Hmm. I've heard that. Because well, you, you, you might have even said it before I did. 
<laughs> but the, the, so so the, it, it's a sort of a this is a peon to saying there are people around the world who are making and here's what to me that means go ahead uh, for me that means that you have properly farmed grapes meaning from or- some sort of organic viticulture and you have a grape bunch with their stems and you have a a receptacle to make your wine in and you have a receptacle to raise your wine in and then you've got a way to put your wine into the bottle and that's basically all you need to make wine Um, so that's what I've that's a properly made wine and within that there are all sorts of possibilities you can make choices about how much extraction you want um, how much just gentleness you want to treat the grapes whether you want to use the stems whether you want to take them off whether you want to make your wine in clay or in old wood or in fiberglass or in porcelain you have all these all these um, decisions to make but the point is that you're using yourself and the grape and not going to the additive store and buying enzymes and yeast and bacteria or you're not using excessive temperature control you're not so basically that's a properly made one and people you say don't really realize how much of this foreign stuff is in the wine that you're drinking that's right uh there is an awful lot and even if there's not a lot, there's a lot that one can do with a machine to make a wine very stable and very uninteresting. So um, right now, that those machines like centrifuges uh, or reverse osmosis are being used to make wines that are not sulfured, as if that's the only thing that is important to a natural wine. But, sul- uh, but there's a lot of stuff that can be done. But sulfur is kind of important, right? I mean, it does, yes, it sulfur does, is I mean, important. It, it seriously could get in the way. Yeah, it is a useful tool. Um, certainly it's used, even people who don't use it in winemaking use it in cleaning. The real fanatics will not use it in cleaning. Oh, really? um, <laughs> but And sometimes if you just clean your utensils with sulfur and water, that's enough sulfur protection for the wine. But when you use too much, and for and that is actually a little goes a long way. But if you use too much, it really affects the life of a wine. It kind of renders it inert, um, tight, not expressive. So yeah, it is a um, it in too much. You know, when you use it in excessive amounts, it really, I don't know, neutralizes the wine to me, or neuters it, I should say. Now, there's another, there's another big issue I, I think I got from your writing, that, that being careful how you treat the dirt is, is also really important. But I, I, yeah. but I do, but I do wonder about this biodynamic thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. <laughs> I can talk about it, though. I'm wondering about what you wonder about. Maybe after I talk about it, you can tell me what you're wondering. So biodynamic is just, um, for me, it's just another way of farming organically. 
it, it is based, but it is just much more serious. It's more, um, yeah, it's just more attuned to nature. So it is based on using nine treatments, and these nine treatments are derived from either animal, mineral, or vegetable. And they are prepared in a dynamizer. And I frankly can't tell you, I'm not going to actually tell you whether I believe in the dynamizer or not. I was just going to ask you (laughs) I actually don't care, you know? It's like I know that I've, but the dynamizer, so basically it's, uh, you put it in a centrifuge, not really a centrifuge, but there's a centrifugal force in there as you're dynamizing, like sort of like <laughs> six times this way, six times that way. I don't really know exactly how many times you go in one way or the other. But it does have an effect on the substance and these substances, whether they're made from nettles or chamomile or um is dung and, and then there's yeah, the another dung, yeah, another very yeah another very the point cow of famous prepper, preparations yes is um, is the 500 where you stuff a cow horn with dung and you bury it on winter solstice coming right, right up and then you dig it up on the equinox. Now, this sounds very woo-woo, right? It sounds really, really super crazy. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's like the poster child for the weirdness of five uh-huh. But what happens is that by the time you take it out on the equinox, it has, it has transformed. It has fermented. And it has transformed into this beautiful, crumbly substance that has no, no... Uh, resemblance to its original form. And so you take this and you put it in the dynamizer and you spray a tiny little bit. Um, it, see, everybody who uses it really just has like magical substance. So even though it sounds spiritual and pagan, yeah. in well, effect it has when, a true effect yeah. and transition and, and, and yeah, it's I, I quite a beautiful... Yeah, I yeah. suspected this because, I mean, Randall Graham, and you don't have to go about this naked either, do you? <laughs> right. No, you don't have to do it naked. <laughs> no, but I suspect... Now, the, the interesting thing is that we, we were at the Cullen Estate in, in, mm-hmm. West, in Western Australia. Oh, yeah, that was... And, and the, the winemaker told us that, the, that he and the owner agreed that if they had not gone biodynamic, their vineyard would have been out of business. Yeah, and dead. Totally dead. He said because their they, their grape yield, their grape yields were going down. Everything everything was headed in a downward direction, mm-hmm. and, and going biodynamic totally changed that direction. It rescued the whole vineyard. And, yeah, and, this is, um, and, this and those not are beautiful a, vineyards. Fania did an amazing job there. Yeah, but, it, but it's not an old vineyard. I mean, it's not it's not like monoculture has been going on for a couple of hundred years. So the so the so the soil is dead. Right. But but it, but it's not good. But also, I I believe there in Western Australia, yeah. they've got a lot of problems with high salinity in their soils, and also they were probably really. I I was only there like you after it went biodynamic, but I remember hearing the stories about it coming back, and you hear those stories all the time. Mm-hmm. When you hear people go from organic to biodynamic, they're not usually as dramatic. But I hear all the time about the 
acidities being better and the balance being better and the yields being more in balance. Um, and whether or not it is the biodynamics or whether this kind of farming fosters a higher awareness by the vineyard keeper. Oh, that's um, interesting. So it, either or, it, I have yet to see the person who says, no difference. Right. Right. I, I agree with you, Allison. I think that what if, if we have to look past what we might think is quirky to just get to the essence of, of the uh, of, of what happens. Right, because when you come down to it, you're not harming the earth. You're not, it's not chemical farming. So it's another way of organic farming. Like, okay, fine. It may uh-huh. sound spiritual, but, you know, get past it. Look at the results. So now, now the results me, can be me, beautiful. Let me go a slightly different direction. We were in we were in the Barossa Valley. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think the winemaker was Grant Burge, and mm-hmm. I st- and I still have the photographs because he had roses planted at the end of all the rows, mm-hmm. and that was for something I can't remember what that was for. But then we we talked to somebody else about about spraying the vineyard to keep the pests down, and they said we just have a lot of owls. <laughs> and an, an, an adult owl can consume. You, you have no idea how many rodents. Rodents. <laughs> an, an owl right. on the wing can. So, is is this part of natural winemaking? But to, to be able to do, um, uh, you know, uh, pest management with yeah. your pests with your owls. Yeah. Well, that, that's more sustainable. Um, well. But it is certainly part of it all. Like you try to figure out what is a natural balance for your vineyard. So if you have a monoculture, you're really not going to be having any owls in there. But so what can you do to your environment? However, you know, if owls are not necessarily in your habitat and you bring them in, they might cause more trouble. Um, You have to figure out what is what makes sense for your own habitat and help foster that balance. And that is very much about biodynamics and about biodiversity. And, of course, um, since you're not using any pesticides in an organic or biodynamic vineyard, like how else do you get rid of those? By having a healthy balance. Of owls. <laughs> yeah. And, and the roses are there because they are usually the first size sign of oh, then, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah, they're the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Yeah, and had a question. Yeah, now, um, you, you of course emphasize that the, the main difference is the, the taste, the flavor of the, of the wine. But you also carry a little further saying that in natural wines, um, your last taste will be different from your first taste, and I didn't understand that. Meaning that, actually, this is something that Tony Couture always, always says, with a conventional wine, your first taste is the best, and your last taste is the worst. Oh, right. So basically, okay. the wine does not get any better. I see. With a natural wine, it keeps on changing every time. Why is and that? It, so, is this more complex? Well, because there's nothing there fixing the taste in place. Got so it, with yeah, yeah. no or low sulfur, we're talking with a living, um, a living substance that keeps on changing and interacting with the oxygen. And so 
So that, and it goes back to, you know, you have a tight wine, you put it in a decanter to open it up so it can react to the oxygen, and you will really see that a great deal when it comes to a natural wine. Now, let, let's go to a different country, just for the hell of it. Yes. And we, sure. and we, we visited with the people at Rhoda. I knew you were going to, that was my next question. <laughs> and, 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 and the people at Rhoda in, uh, in, in, in Rioja. In Rioja. Yeah. The, the interesting thing was that their, their project was relatively new. So they were, so they were getting, they were getting grapes. But they w- would not use them to make their own wine. They were, they were growing grapes and then selling them to somebody else so they could get rid of them. <laughs> Yeah. And help finance their projects because they, they they wanted to make wines that were specific to their region and their vine growing practices, which included no irrigation in the Rioja, which is which is which, is which is which yeah. is really something. And I, I'm sure I'm sure it's in I'm sure it's she in the book. She addresses that, yeah. But I, but I wanted to make sure that not everybody's going to read the book, so I wanted to make sure yeah. that she realized that that we didn't miss that out. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you think it's best not to give any water, right? Yes. Um, ultimately, basically, I want to plant where you don't need to. Um, or if you are in an arid situation, you plant wine grapes that are um, drought-resistant, right. on rootstock that's drought-resistant. Um, you know, you the grapes are probably grapes are probably the only fruit that really doesn't that really can fend for itself if you plant it in the right place. So to to waste our water resources on growing grapes for wine, I think is it's um, frivolous and uh, yeah, it's actually criminal. Yeah, you give a good example, California. California, right? Yeah, yeah you you hear yeah, that, you guys from California. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, so you, <laughs> they don't like me there. <laughs> I, I can't, like can't imagine. Can't imagine you're, pretty, you're probably on the list shortly be, behind Don Robert, Robert Parker. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a Robert Parker book probably better than all your other books. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> That's probably the first time we interviewed him. Actually, but, but, right. but seriously, exactly. now now we have everybody sold on the idea that I have to go natural wine drinking. Which is the thing that follows natural wine making, well, but, right. but you, you you have a lot of advice in the book on where you can find organic wines. How how you even can find natural them in the first wines. place? Natural wines. I'm sorry, natural mm-hmm. wines. So talk to us a little bit about making your natural wine cellar. Making your natural wine cellar. So there are a lot of myths around, and one of them is that natural wine doesn't age, which, of course, is absolutely not true. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of natural wines that are meant to be quickly drunk, like in the first year or two, and there are so many others that if you put down, you know, like you can have a beautiful cellar from like a five-year five to 20-year cellar. Yeah, this is and a good part of your book, by the way, a section that I thought was really very valuable is you have myth and truth, and you go through the myth and truth of the natural yeah. wines, yeah. yeah. And, of course, natural wines can age, and I don't know where that, well, I do know where that came from, but it's false. <laughs> so, uh, and I, there's, I have to go back to my book to see exactly what it, what I recommended, but... I gave a lot of examples of kinds of natural wines that do age. 
some fabulous Chinons and especially from Chinons and Bourgois from the Loire. Um, Chenin Blanc certainly ages quite beautifully. There are wonderful wines in Italy that are, that have always traditionally, like, um, Trincero, they started making wines in the 1950s. They never use any sulfur. And if you go back and you taste the wines from the 50s or the 60s, they're stunning. And those are certainly quite old at this point. So I would go about building a natural wine cellar the way I would really any. I would, I would pepper it in with some great Burgundy, some great Beaujolais. <laughs> Yeah, some Bourgogne, some Chinon. There's some very age-worthy natural wines now from California. Uh, so in Katori, uh, so in Caleb Leisure, I think his wines are going to age beautifully. Deirdre Heacon up in Vermont. And one can really absolutely build a beautiful natural wine cellar. And actually, right now, we're seeing a number of natural wines showing up at auction. In the, so, you're not saying that, you're not saying across the board, I mean, I just want to emphasize that, that natural wines by, by nature no, are, are by nature, actually no. great. I mean, there's some good and there's, I've had some really awful ones. And, yeah. and, and I'd like and to try the ones you think were wonderful. Hmm? Right. And some for early consumption and some for, you know, lay down. And yeah, it's, um, I, I do have this, newsletter, the firing line, and I'm always, so they're, they're like 20 recommendations in issue, and in those recommendations are always recommendations of ones that you can lie down um, and sell her up. So it's like anything. Not every wine is meant to be aged, whether it's conventional or natural. I thought it was so very, I thought it was, sense. I thought it was very interesting that you picked, you picked the Loire region as being particularly interesting for natural wines, do you do you think it has anything to do with the fact that the the, the wines are aged be, below the where the where the grapes are grown? I mean, I, I I really think it's such an odd situation that you have these bluffs on either side of the river, and that and that's where the wineries are, and, mm-hmm. the, and the grapes are growing on top of that. Right. Well, some well you're talking about over in. The, so um, when there's limestone, and so when there's limestone, and one can easily carve their cave. Yeah, right. Um, but when you go to the Loire, uh, where the like in Anjou Noir, like where it's mostly schist, you're not going to find that because it's too because you can't really drill down the okay, shift. Right. So it's not every place in the Loire that is able. I think the Loire, basically, because it's cool climate, um, I think that cool climate actually ages better, um, slower to develop, and um, you know, the thicker the skins of the grape and the tannin. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it, the terroir, certainly. But... Um, and just because it makes some of my favorite wine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, why not? <laughs> and I love like old Chinon. I just love old Chinon. It's I, rem- so I remember we, we were in one winery where where they where they had wines from the previous century, just mm, a, just yeah. a few, and they they, they 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 only opened them for for new grandchildren. I think. Yeah, it's a it's all family tradition. 
very dusty mm. bottles and things like that. It was, I mean, you might get a nasty surprise or two if you did that. <laughs> like that champagne that somebody saved up and gave us for our wedding. Oh, it, yeah, it tasted yeah, well, like well. dairy. <laughs> it was awful. Yeah, well, what, what can you do? The, the, the worst one was was Sid Queller. If you remember, Sid right. Sid gave me a bottle from a really serious collector here in Pittsburgh who had given it to him on on the on the occasion of my fiftieth birthday, <laughs> and and I opened it and drank it and spat <laughs> in, in, <laughs> instantly because <laughs> he he I guess he had, knowing Sid he probably didn't like to drink wine so he probably had it standing up in the back, back of a kitchen <laughs> cupboard somewhere somewhere behind a range. Well, Alice Firing, I think that this book is um, a. a handbook and also an inspiration and uh, talking to you always makes me want to go drink wine but you know for, for not for that reason but for, because it's you just you love it so much and you find so much interesting to to uh, you've stored up so much information don't you sometimes wonder how much you learned and know about wine huh well, sometimes it's shocking, and I go on and I go on, and like, oh my god, I guess I know something about it. <laughs> I think you do. <laughs> I, but I, I must say that um, things are cyclical, and uh, I am back at the point of realizing exactly how much I don't know. And I think this happens. You know, the more you know, the more you don't know. Right. Or because just knowledge is infinite. But I do know something. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, will, I will grant you that. Thank well, you. Well, it's all, <laughs> Thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for noticing. That's funny. It's, a, it's, it's all so much fun. The world, the world of wine is such an interesting world anyway. And uh, was it last year or the year before we went to the, the Rothschild Manor? In, near, near, it's near Oxford. And it's, and it's, own, it's owned by the one branch of the Rothschild family. And... Uh, the, the interesting thing is, it's, what, what struck me most wasn't the wine; it was a, a sculpture they had outside, oh, right. outside <laughs> the the, uh, the property, which was a tree, and a all, all, the, all the all the leaves on the tree were wine bottles. Yeah, but you know that was the met, same. We, yeah, we, the, scu- we, the sculptor we yeah, met. In, yeah, we, uh, we met the artist in the, where was it in Bilbao? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bilbao. I said, we, we, we know your sculpture. <laughs> but most people hadn't told her that in a long time. Well, Alice, thank you so much for yet another book and um, also for talking to us. It's always well, a great pleasure. It is always a pleasure for me. I've had a smile on my face from ear to ear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alice. When right. the, I want to read the novel, remember? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay. When when it ever gets old. <laughs> well, Alice, thank you again. Oh, bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Producer snuck in a break <laughs> and got got out a little confused. So so we're we're back on the menu. Radio is back. Second second track of this morning's program. 
the Scotland's best gin. Now, I, I didn't even know they really did much with gin in Scotland. I thought it was always scotch. But apparently, very close to the very northern tip of the highlands of Scotland is a small brewery called Rock Rose. Rock, Rock Rose Gin. Yeah, and the, Rock Rose Brewery. Location is, distillery. The location right. is Dunnett Bay, which is pr- probably six houses and a distillery. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the amazing thing is that it's it's, it's hand-bottled in porcelain containers, so you can't see what's inside and you have a big surprise when you pour it because the gin inside is blue. <laughs> but not but not for nothing was it this year's best gin in Scotland. So you should certainly get some. We, we have some and it's almost gone, but that's just the way things are around here. Anyway, here's Martin Murray, who he, together with his wife founded this distillery and He's obviously being very successful, and we wish him even more success in the future. Martin Murray, welcome to On The Menu Radio, and uh, give give us a few words in the Scottish language, if you would. <laughs> oh, Scottish language, it's always I. I is a big word in Scotland, you always I, when people are asking you, if you're fine, and um, would you like a drink? <laughs> would you like a dram, right? <laughs> yeah, a dram, that's right, a wee, a wee dram. Well, well, we're going to finish up talking about Rock Rose Gin, which just won some very dramatic awards in the, in the UK gin business. But I have a different question. Scotland is known for a different kind of alcoholic beverage, so, so why gin? Very interesting. Um, when we were looking at creating our own drink, we, we looked at spirits, we looked at beer, and for us, we really wanted to be able to reflect our local environment, our local area into the product, and gin really lends itself to that. So we take berries from the forest, mint from the garden, rhodiola rosea from the cliffs, and we make a product that reflects caithness. So the big appeal with gin was that um, we could make it uh, a taste of caithness. Um, I was also steered to it by my, my wife, who is a gin drinker. So I think um, she may have had an influence on me when we were at the planning stage um, because she loves gin. It's um, her favourite drink. And, um, you know, Rock Rose, five, six years ago when we were doing it, it was kind of unconceivable that we could could make a product that would go to um, all around the world and it's great that something that is still a taste of caithness using these local berries now um, let's make sure that people who haven't been to scotland as many times as i have know where caithness is and 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 just to put it as a dot on the map for for those people around the world who don't think maps like i do Caithness is the last piece of Scotland before before, before there's no more Scotland. (laughs) Absolutely. We are the most northerly distillery on mainland Scotland, and because we're so far north, I don't think anyone's going to be taking that title from us anytime soon. (laughs) We're in a very remote village of 300 people, and I always joke that the nearest McDonald's is uh, 100 miles away, so it's uh, it's very, very remote. To, To put it another way, it's the John O'Groats, which is the other end of, of Land's End. Land, Land's End being the furthest southwest 
and Jonathan Rhodes, which isn't even a town, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a is, is, the, is the other end of it. And then you get the Orkneys and Shetlands Islands off of there and places where yeah. the British used to used to hide their naval armada. And, it, and it's that's cold. Right. And we're more further north than John Goats, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, it, but it's, 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 it's well up there, and it, it's, in, it's intriguing that local ingredients make the difference because... Oh, the, the botanicals in it are extraordinary for, from my point of view of taste. I mean, because I've never been a gin t- drinker, but I love this. Oh, thank you very much, Anne. It's, it's a gin, it's a classic London dry gin. Um, you know, when we spoke to people six years ago, they were, I'm not really a gin drinker, and I said, okay, if you're going to give up on gin, try one more and then give up. Try our gin before you give up. And we managed to convert a lot of people because our gin is not so perfumey. It's very well balanced. It's more intricate, and people love it. They love that you can pull out these berries, these citrus flavours and a little bit of spice and that complexity and that balance really works for people there's a lot of thought got into it and you know we were nervous when people got to try it the first time because at that point the gin had two fans myself and Claire and then we opened up our um, taste preference, our experiments to the world and thankfully Touchwood, everybody liked what we were doing and um, it's been reflected in the success we've had now, does Rock Rose mean something in particular? It comes from one of the first walks that I did. So um, I used to go for walks with Brian Lamb, the UK's oldest established herbalist, who just so happens to be my brother's father-in-law. Um, we went for walks in the forest and then on the cliffs, and he showed me this uh, uh, plant growing in the cracks of the cliffs called Rhodiola rosea. Um, he made me taste the leaf. And when I tasted the leaf, it was horrible, absolutely unsuitable for using for gin and he asked me what I thought and I said oh, um, I don't know, I, I don't think it's right for our gin and he said no it's foul, now try this and he chopped the root and it was delicious it was a really earthy rose flavour um, a little bit astringent so when we distilled it, it took the astringency and left us that lovely flavour so it's a rose that grows in the rocks and that's where the name Rock Rose comes from uh-huh. Now, now what, what, what was it that you just won awards for? They were, they were pretty special awards Absolutely so it's a big night in the Scottish gin industry where um, over 600 gins are entered into the awards there's uh, a big um, awards ceremony, we were nominated for two of the bigger awards, the Best Distilled Gin, and then the big award, um, the Gin Distillery of the Year. And we won both, which was absolutely incredible. <laughs> I, I, I just said it there, and I still had to like just check myself that what I was saying was correct. But yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. We are just so thrilled. A small distillery in a very remote part of Scotland, self-funded, self-started, and you won the big one, you know, it's, it's amazing. Well, yeah, no, you guys aren't going to be probably bringing this up, but, but um, I, I know you, you appreciate how um, how wonderful the packaging is. Talk to us about the special bottle and design and box. Uh, so we worked with some great designers at the start, and clear, my wife was in charge of making sure the design was outstanding. My background is engineering, so my job was to make sure the lit was, was outstanding. So 
Clare worked really hard. I think he did a great job with the packaging. And it's a ceramic bottle. It's screen printed. It's hand waxed, hand numbered. Really iconic bottle. When you see it next to coloured glass gin bottles, it stands out on the shelf. And we love that because the ceramic protects the gin from sunlight. It protects those delicate flavours. It also plays back to the history of the Dutch Geneva craft bottles. Um, it looks oh, is that right? So this premium. Yeah, that's right. It's that kind of throws back to the history of gin. So the original Geneva that was brought over by by William of Orange came, yeah, came in sure. came in those, those style bottles. Yeah, that's right. And even now, you'll see a lot of the Dutch Geneva is still in those ceramic bottles. It's, it's great, and for us, it gave us a point of difference. But it also um, was something that my wife really believed in. So when we had to launch it, we were given feedback initially that gin should be in a coloured glass bottle because that's all the other gins are in. So pick a different colour and do that. But we fully believed that if we were going to do something that we loved, then if it failed, then okay, we did something we loved and we were wrong. But we had to do something we loved because if we did it the other way and we did something that everyone told us and it failed, then we would have been really kicking ourselves. So Claire went with that, and I'll give you a little story. At the dinner table one night, I said to Claire, I said, you know if nobody buys a bottle of Rockwell's gin, it's because you've done a lousy job of the design. <laughs> and you're still alive? She, she, no, she turned instantly and said to me, if nobody buys a second bottle of her gin, it's because you've done a lousy job of the distillation. <laughs> so I've never brought it up since, but it, it's what makes us a good team. We have very different um, specialties, and... We, uh, we respect each other and we trust each other to do that, and that's a big part of our success. Now, here, here's, a, here's a different question. Over, over the years, years and years and years, dec- decades and decades and decades, the, uh, the spirits business was, was held back in a way because it was taxed so heavily. And it, it, occur, it occurs to me to ask you, the, it, it, maybe it's a silly question, but... Are there a lot of obstacles you have to get over in order to be able to open a gin distillery in Scotland? Yeah, there's still those barriers there, actually. So you're right, tax is a big issue. So where microbreweries get tax relief, spirits, microdistilleries don't get that relief. Um, The other big barrier was that you had to have a minimum still size to get a distillery licence or a warehouse licence. So um, those two barriers... One still exists, the tax still exists, it's still a challenge for small distilleries, um, but the minimum still size was successfully challenged by London Distillery, and um, that opened the gates for other micro distilleries to start up. So fortunately, we can do it. There's just only the one buyer that's taxed now, and if we can tell people about the thought, the care, and um, the quality that is our products then we can fight against the big guys who pay the same tax as us and have bigger budgets, but we can demonstrate the quality and the care that's gone into the final product. Now, let's let's talk about drinking rock rose. Is it, is, is, it, is it a mixing gin or is it a sipping gin? We're, we're your classic British gin and tonic drinkers, so we designed the drink to be a gin and tonic. Now, what's really interesting is that we're not from the spirits industry at all. So when we developed the gin, we were told you have to have a perfect serve. You know, Hendrix has the cucumber serve, and we needed to have a perfect serve. 
And as a husband and wife team, we could not agree on the perfect serve. And it actually got us thinking, if we have both such strong um, passion about our own perfect serves, then let's leave it like that. Let's tell people our perfect serves and ask them to find their own. So Claire has hers slightly longer than mine, three parts tonic to one part gin with a curl of orange peel. So it's very refreshing, very sexy, lovely on a summer's day or any sunny day. Um, and then for me, I really like earthy, smoky notes. So I toast rosemary and I have my gin and tonic, two parts tonic to one part gin. And it's punchier, but it's that earthy smokiness and I just absolutely love it that way. Um, and the great thing for me is rosemary goes outside her kitchen window, so I don't have to hunt for any citrus fruit in the winter. I just open the window, chop a little bit of rosemary, and I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> now, now talk, talk to us about availability uh, around the world. About as big in Spain, huh? We just launched in Spain in uh, January. Spain's been always been the go-to market for gin brands, and we've tried to find the right partner there for some time, and uh, it's never been the right opportunity, but... We just landed our distribution agreement to launch in Spain in the new year, so we're really excited about that. Now, when we launched, um, we thought that success for us would be selling some bottles of gin in Edinburgh and Glasgow because we're really remote, we're not from the industry, we're new to this. All of these thoughts in our mind meant that we would struggle to sell outside a 100-mile radius. Um, So... When we took off, everything was flying, and then um, within four months, we had a call from Germany, and we didn't know how to export. We had no idea on the paperwork, the compliance, so we rejected the offer, and then the German importer came back to us and said, how about we teach you to export, teach you all the paperwork, and we'll pick up the gin, and we'll pay for it in advance, and it was amazing. They taught us how to export, and since then... Four years ago, we've now landed in 19 other countries, including, I think, it's 15 states now in the U.S., and it's crazy. You know, this is the thing about the whole business that really is the bit that I love, is when I hear that someone's drinking our gin in Hawaii, in Singapore, <laughs> and it, it's absolutely mind-blowing, because every bottle is being waxed and numbered by our team, so it gives me, a, like, a huge left when I go to these places and I turn the bottle around and I see the batch who made it I can tell by the wax who waxed it and it just it's, it's single-handedly the best part about the, the the product that we've created is seeing it go on its travel and seeing people enjoy it well it's it's a fascinating story I'm so so glad it crossed our desk I'm so glad we were able yeah. to get connected with you and uh, we wish you continued success, earning export dollars for Scotland with a <laughs> with a with a rather unconventional product. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, great meeting you much. too, Martin. Thank you. Yeah, absolute pleasure to speak to you both, and thanks for um, talking to me tonight. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Okay, sweetheart, so how are we finishing, going to finish up today's program? Um, well, we're going to be talking to Daniel S. Pierce, who's a professor 
and uh, he's his book is called Tar Heel Lightning. And what is the Tar Heel State? North Carolina. North Carolina. And, and uh, not only that, but Daniel is a huge fan of the Andy Griffith Show, which we used to yes, watch exactly. when, we, when, we, when, we, when we were children. And he watches the program today. So yeah, and he, he just finished. Joey, I think I think he was going to I think he was going to load up a second one. <laughs> just, <laughs> well, just I mean, I want to point out one thing, by the way, that um, first of all, um, we're going to wish everybody a happy New Year, right? And, and point out that this is, in fact, the last 2019 program you'll be listening to. The next time we come to you, it will be the year 2020, and the end of the se- decade, be, depending on how you well, calculate it. It'll be it'll be our seventeenth year. We will enter our 17th year. In fact, when we started in 2004, I think that the only uh, podcast on food and drink at this scale was Splendid Table, and they're still going too, which I guess tells you that people are interested in food and drink. Anyway, let's let's do the white lightning thing, huh? No, Tar Heel lightning. Well, it's white lightning. Oh, okay. Moonshine. Daniel S. Pierce. I don't know what the S stands for, but I'm sure it's important because it looks good on the page. <laughs> um, you you have a book out, Tar Heel Lightning, How Secret Stills and Fast Cars Made North Carolina the Moonshine Capital of the World. Now, that's a mouthful. <laughs> but your first book was about the stock car racing in North Carolina, right? Well, my first book was actually on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And oh, then my wow. second, second was on, on NASCAR. Yeah, and, and you seem to think that, um, that this moonshine really created NASCAR. Oh, definitely. There's a, there's a big connection between the two in terms of the, the, uh, uh, the drive, the early drivers were just about all people who had, uh, as I put it, um, had their first high-speed driving experience behind the uh, wheel of a car hauling liquor, uh, <laughs> illegal liquor. What really permeated the whole thing from... Oh, wasn't the, that TV program called Dukes of Hazard? Yeah, was, uh, yeah. That's actually built off of a nor- famous North Carolina moonshiner. You are a serious historian. I mean, but you're fascinated with the history of this moonshine, right? There's so much <laughs> going on in your book. Um, well, it's it, it's a fascinating subject. It's something that I uh, uh, came to in a, in a strange way, I guess. My um, I grew up. Uh, my dad uh, was a Southern Baptist minister, and so I grew up in a very much a teetotaling household. So, <laughs> so uh, it's kind of a strange place for me to be. But uh, but the more I I looked into it, I, I mean, the thing that interests me as a historian or how people um, find ways to adapt uh, in their life, particularly in dealing with difficult circumstances. And so a lot of these people were people who, you know, lived in poverty and um, and, and the South and North Carolina, you know, for much of, you know, post-Civil War uh, up until really the 60s and the 70s um, was in pretty dire straits. And so this was one of the main coping mechanisms for a lot of people because this is one of the really sure, particularly once Prohibition comes along, this is one of the the really sure forms of cash that people, uh, you know, had and they they knew how to make it and 
and uh, there was a big market for it, and so people were willing to take the risk of getting caught. Count, why don't you define moonshine? Okay, technically, well, generally speaking, uh, again, you might find a variety of definitions, but it's unaged uh, corn liquor um, uh, made illegally. So there are uh, there is a thing now because there's, yeah, I mean, there's been, yeah, it's called that people call legal moonshine, but yes. but that's really a contradiction because if it's moonshine, it's illegal. Yeah, so. Well, that's why I was asking about this because most of your book talks about the illegal stuff, but we've gotten people well, not, wanting us to sample uh, legal moonshine. Yeah, what they call white whiskey, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. Why? Is it made the same? I think the white whiskey is probably made in a rather more sanitary fashion than the moonshine. <laughs> so, anyhow, we were talking about white whiskey. Um, I had another interesting uh, discovery, I'd say, is that there seemed to be in this whole prohibition thing and the illegal uh, liquor thing a place for everybody. You say there's a place for uh, um, women. I love the thing about the uh, the queen of of um, uh, what, what's her name? Oh, Betty Sam. I love setting fire to the jail. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so it, there, you know, many colorful characters, right? Well, that was that was you know one thing that uh, that kept it um, endlessly interesting. I'll, I'll put it that way because. Uh, you just, you, you come across some, uh, figure and you really don't think that, uh, uh, anyone could top that and then you, and, and then you find one that does. And, it, and again, it was one of the most fascinating things for me was to look at the, uh, because, you know, a lot of people had written about moonshine, but people really had not written about the women and the African Americans yeah, and Native the Americans. Yeah, the African American involvement, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that really it was, it was all over the state. People see it as a mountain thing with, you know, uh, white guys with overalls and long beards and funny oh, yeah. hats. And, uh, but really it was all over, uh, all over North Carolina and all over the South and, uh, uh, and as likely to be in a swamp as it was in a, in a, in a mountain cove. And again, there were just lots of, you know, people really don't have that image of the woman moonshiner, but particularly in the, Late um, 1800s and early 1900s, it was it was really common. For one thing, um, and one of the really fascinating things about that, it was kind of a social welfare system for um, uh, women who were widows or who had been abandoned by their husbands, uh, who had uh, particularly small children as a as a kind of legitimate way in in rural communities for them to support their families, and so it was kind of something that um, a lot of times if they got caught, the judges would just kind of say, don't do that anymore and go <laughs> home to your family, you know, because they didn't want to put them in jail, and, uh, uh, and they really didn't have facilities for that, you know. But then you had some women like Betty Sims who just kind of seemed to embrace the whole thing, you know, and just had this uh, outlandish lifestyle, and, uh, and at least... Uh, in the popular press had this reputation of, you know, carrying knives and guns and, uh, you know, and fighting it out with the authorities and things like that, just like the men. But, uh, uh, but again, it was, 
really surprising in many ways when I, I kept coming across uh, all these women involved. And so, again, I think that gives it a, a story, and, you know, uh, makes it even richer than it, uh, uh, than it was before. Right. I mean, really, you say it's, it really sets the, the uh, climate, the cultural climate of the state, right? Yes, very much so. I mean, again, it's just something that that really permeated, um, <laughs> you know, particularly in poor communities, but but even, you know, among wealthier people, you know, it's something that really just about touched everybody in the state in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Now, I, and, uh, I remember on our first trips to North Carolina, and Anne used to travel with me quite often when I was traveling on business, but depending on where you were, you might have to brown bag it. What yeah, that was up was until like that? yeah, up until the sixties and seventies and lots yes, of places. Yes. Uh, that was common. If if you were allowed to do that, you were allowed to do it at all, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah but well, uh, West yeah. Virginia was dry for as long as I could remember. Yes, up. yes, it was. Yeah. Well, Charlotte. Yeah, and so I mean, yeah, people think about prohibition ending in the. Uh, thir- 1933, but but in in the South and uh, and in North Carolina especially, you know, it persisted in lots of counties. Uh, well, we still have some dry counties to this day. Um, yeah, we have we have one in Pittsburgh neighborhood that uh, just in the last election uh, changed the the liquor control laws. <laughs> I mean, they were dry till then. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what what's this connection with Andy Griffith? Was Andy Griffith? Well, sitting you know, Andy Griffith is from North Carolina. He's from Mount Airy, which is where the the, the Mayberry came from, and uh, that part of the state is was um, really um, a and uh, across the line because it's right on the Virginia line uh, too, and across the line in Virginia is a real moonshine hotbed. So he grew up in an environment uh, where there was moonshine was was uh, I guess you'd say ever present. He was, so was he was like that, the sheriff, that, wasn't he? Like the sheriff, yeah, yeah, right. He was the sheriff of Mayberry, and so it was something that showed up, but particularly in the early years of the Andy Griffith show, um, quite frequently. And and, had, and, the, and of course, there's always been this fascination in the popular culture. From I mean, going back to the silent movie era, you know, and uh, and you know everything from souvenirs and dramas and uh, and then. Uh, movies, television shows, all these things. It was always a big theme, but, uh, but he really, uh, he was one of the people that really kind of depicted in a pretty accurate fashion. I mean, for one, he had an episode about women moonshiners that, you know, nobody <laughs> uh, even thought about that. Or, and also about the relationship between sheriffs and these moonshiners who, um, particularly, you know, because it was against federal law because of the excise tax. Yeah, and most of the enforcement was by federal agents, and local sheriffs kind of enforced it, but they had to run for reelection, and they had to be careful about antagonizing voters, and so uh, they tended to tread carefully. Uh, and but some of the things in the Andy Griffith show, like letting people go home to harvest their crops, or <laughs> or uh, letting somebody go home for Christmas, you know, as long as they agreed to come back, it was pretty accurate. That actually happened, you know, yeah. quite frequently. Uh, so there was, you know, we, you know, uh, Hollywood loved to play up on the uh, uh, the car chases and shootouts uh, between revenue agents and moonshiners, right. but. 
But for the most part, you know, the relations were pretty amicable. You know, if you catch me, fair enough. And um, uh, you caught me, and then I'll I'll cooperate. And, and the sheriff would say, okay, I won't haul you in and handcuffs, but, you know, if you disagree to show up in court on such and such a date, I'll just let you go. <laughs> and they do it, you know. Really nice. <laughs> Nice yeah. culture. <laughs> now you you really watch you you said you watch a, a Andy Griffith show every day. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watch some today. You know, it's just I don't know. It's just uh, uh, old habit. But um, but um, you know, he's 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 an old friend in many ways. I see. <laughs> um, the, the, we get a lot of. Um, information and, and requests to showcase um, Moonshine Today. I mean, we're in some kind of a renaissance of uh, this, what they call moonshine, but as you say, it really isn't. When, why is it not so popular again? Is it popular? I, you know, that's a good question. I think, you know, part of it is um, people have always been interested in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, people always ask me, do you, do you have some moonshine? You know, and I say, well, uh, who's asking? You know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, or they'll say, I know where you can get some, and I'll say, I do too. And uh, you know, so people always have been interested in it. But you know, having this, uh, well, for one, you had this kind of boom in the popular culture starting about 2000. There's a guy around here named Popcorn Sutton. Who yeah, kind I love of, the name. <laughs> and he became this kind of nationally known and the internationally known figure and was on several uh, cable TV shows. And then they had this moonshiner show on where, that follows these guys that are making illegal moonshine. And, and so people are just fascinated with it. And then the legal stuff... Um, you know, kind of gives them a way to, um, you know, to to try it and uh, and drink it and uh, uh, without the, you know, that it's, that it's FDA approved, uh, <laughs> that it's legal and you're not risking uh, anything there. Yeah, your, and, hair, your uh, hair won't fall out and you won't <laughs> go blind. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. And there were, you know, there were some, Pretty nasty things, you know. Recently, uh, you know, most of the even the illegal stuff is pretty clean. But you know, back in the sixties and seventies, there were a number of uh, lab bad alcohol. Places. Lab yeah, alcohol, and, uh, yeah, that can make you blind. I know we used to have parties right, with that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, and lead poisoning and things like that 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 went along. But uh, and I always tell someone else that if you're gonna get the illegal stuff then you really need to know the person that's making it so uh, but again there's just this fascination with it and so these you know the once they liberalize the laws in in um really throughout the south in very recent years to where you could have a small uh craft distillery people just kind of jumped in, in into that market very quickly and yeah well craft amazing. everything now it's uh, yeah yeah, yeah. it's amazing craft. how you know, I mean, there there are new ones cropping up every day. I mean, we had the beer uh, thing here in Asheville that started, yeah. oh gosh, about thirty years ago. But but yeah. we uh, have we have stills and people popping up with the uh, craft stills distilleries and all in Pittsburgh, lots of them. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. only in the last uh, 
I'm trying to think, you know, seven, eight years, really. That, right, it uh, is, yes. Yeah. That that's happened, you know, that the laws have been such. And there's still some kind of, in North Carolina, kind of some backward laws that they're still trying to get changed yeah. but, uh, that, that limit some of the things they can do in terms of uh, selling directly from the distillery and things like that. Because you know, well, we have a... Well, this is this we have is a state monopoly here. This, this this is a this is a book to curl up in front of the fire with a glass of whatever your favorite is in your hand, <laughs> and, and le- learn a little bit about America's social history. Yes. Well, I think so, and, and and I would recommend, particularly during the winter, something called apple pie warmed, uh, <laughs> and so you can. You can look that up, and it's uh, got apple cider and apple uh, apple juice and a little brown sugar and some cinnamon, and it really makes for a nice uh, nice drink uh, on a cold day. So it'd be a great place, a uh, way to curl up in front of the fire with that with with this book and uh, and some apple pie moonshines. Great. Oh, Daniel Pierce, I don't know what you're going to come up with next. <laughs> again, <laughs> again, listeners, it's Tar Heel Lightning. And uh, it's 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 humorous, entertaining, but it's still serious history. So look at look it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Y'all have a good day. Do you think we're giving away something about our ages when we talk about the Andy Griffith Show? <laughs> No, I never watched the end. Yeah. The funny part about it is, and 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 so old, she can't even remember it. Oh, come on, you're so nasty. <laughs> I got you, got you. Cool. <laughs> so anyway, same time, same place next week, listeners, and, and you, next year. You, and you, you may be sure we'll have fun like we always do every Sunday morning. So please remember to join us then. And in the meantime, bye bye. <laughs>